All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I like to remind you each week that I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and I'm becoming very excited and enthused about the junior gold sector, despite the fact that the sector's been down for so long. I think the signs are definitely there that we are just about to see a major turn in the gold markets. Uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, uh, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And uh, so if you're interested in Chen's letter, which is an excellent letter, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, put your name on a waiting list, and at the beginning of the next quarter, the next calendar quarter, uh, beginning October 1st, Chen will be accepting new subscribers. You can also call our number during the regular business hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 to sign up for Chen's letter or to put your name, actually to sign up for my letter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, you can call that number or you can go to miningstocks.com to do that as well. I'd like to encourage you to keep sending your questions along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for taylor at gmail.com. And uh, the best place to go to follow everything I do is jtaylormedia, jaytaylormedia.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. I do want to thank also our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Caden Resources and Ganey Capital Corp. And we will be talking to the CEO of Caden Resources in just a few minutes. Uh, a very exciting company that is doing extremely well in Mexico with its exploration projects. One that uh, I have invested in, uh, one of my top holdings, in fact, is Caden Resources. So we're looking forward to hearing from Ivan Bebek, who will be with us. The markets are really taking a shellacking today. I'm, uh, I'm seeing that... Uh, the Dow uh, was down a little while ago, a few minutes before I went on the show, down 153. The S&P was down 20. Gold was holding its own, actually up $3 today, as was the dollar. So there's certainly some flight to quality going on. U.S. Treasury is benefiting from the money out of the equity markets as well today. Well, today's show, uh, we've got Chris Rossini with us. He's uh, with us for the first time. Um, he is the author of a book titled Set Money Free, What Every American Needs to Know About the Federal Reserve. And uh, returning today also, uh, Ivan Bebek, as I just mentioned, from Caden Resources. Gene Epstein uh, also will be with me, both Ivan and Gene, in the first hour of today's show. And then in the second hour, Daniel McAdams will be back to talk about uh, all of the fabrications and propaganda that's going on in the U.S. uh, media regarding our geopolitical 
uh, policies. Uh, and then uh, really a big surprise, uh, we're going to have Quinton Henning. He's the uh, CEO of a company that I think is one of the most exciting new gold exploration stories that I've seen in some 35 years. I'm talking about Novo Resources. So, uh, But uh, in just a few minutes, Ivan Bebek of another, as I mentioned, another very exciting company, one that I have uh, one of my top holdings in, that's Caden Resources. Uh, for reasons I think will become apparent if you stick around and listen to what Ivan has to say, why you really need to focus on Caden Resources, why there's a good chance uh, that you do extremely well. Uh, no, that's a company that's done very well, even in this downturn. But I think when the uh, gold markets take their turn here, which I expect they will do uh, very soon, uh, certainly by the fall, uh, well, nothing certain, I believe by the fall, we'll see a rise, a definite, a, a big rise, I believe, is overdue in the gold markets. And I think you'll see all these stocks doing well, but the ones that are really out ahead of the curve, that have really built the ounces in the ground and moved their projects towards production, will be the first ones to benefit from it. Um, so I am very, very bullish on Caden, and I, I hope that you'll stick around to hear what he has to, uh, what Ivan has to say. Well, getting back to Chris Rossini's book, uh, it I think is a great teaching book. It's really great uh, for helping everyone understand the reasons why the United States has gotten ourselves into the rotten economic mess that we are in. The book received really enthusiastic endorsement from Ron Paul, who said the following with respect to the book. And I'm just going to read what Ron had to say. He said, the reason I am, I am so excited about this book, in uh, some 200 pages, Chris not only explains Austrian economics and monetary policy, he provides a history of central banking in America. Chris explains why the Federal Reserve's uh, why the Federal Reserve was responsible for the Great Depression, the stagflation of the 70s, and the creation of the collapse in the housing bubble in 2008. Ron Paul went on, he said, Chris also explains how the Fed is the driving force behind the welfare state and how the Fed enriches the elites, uh, actually the welfare and warfare state, and how the Fed enriches the elites while harming average Americans. Set Money Free shows why Tea Party activists concerned about welfare spending, anti-war activists seeking to drive a stake in the heart of the American militarism, and Occupy activists looking to reduce income inequality and all Americans concerned about their children's economic future should support ending the Fed. Set Money Free, Ron says, is an important work that explains the economic, philosophical, and historical case against the Fed. People looking to spread the ideas of liberty should consider buying multiple copies of this book to hand to their friends, relatives, and co-workers to show them why ending the Fed is key to restoring liberty, peace, and prosperity, end of quote, Ron Paul. Well, drawing from his book, To Set Money Free, Chris, uh, I will ask him to review how the Fed has destroyed our money and our financial system, capitalism and our personal liberty, uh, and of course, capitalism is a requisite for liberty and free, market, uh, free markets and prosperity. Men who hate capitalism like Lenin, Marx, and Paul Krugman of the New York Times embrace central banking. But the resulting economic destruction requires them to lie through their teeth to explain why things went wrong. Gene Epstein will stop by during the latter part of today's first hour uh, to uh, talk about some of today's leading socialist thinkers and how they have to lie and fudge the truth to justify their socialist ideology. One I really want to ask Gene about is an article he wrote about Paul Krugman uh, in which he talked about how uh, Mr. Krugman, uh, really how he had to fudge the truth on the U.S. debt. So 
the socialist economics intervention in the marketplaces creates all kinds of problems, but it sure wouldn't be the ideology, would it be? It certainly would be, uh, it would be capitalism itself, according to these guys. So we have to alter capitalism because free market capitalism is evil, they say. And so we, the good guys who are in charge, we guys with PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale have to tell you, uh, poor folks, how to behave and how to live. Uh, you're not smart enough to figure that out for yourselves. Well, we do certainly have an awful lot to cover today. Uh, so uh, we, um, I, I think I'm going to ask uh, my engineer to take us to the first uh, commercial break. And uh, when we come back, though, uh, we'll be looking to talk to Ivan Bebek of Caden Resources. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I'm really pleased to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. He's the uh, president and CEO uh, of Caden Resources. Uh, this is a company that I've been following now for, well, since about January of this year when I first met Ivan up in Vancouver. Uh, Ivan is, as I say, the president and CEO of the company. Uh, he oversees basically all the things going on there. He has over 14 years experience in financing foreign uh, negotiations and acquisitions uh, in the mineral industry uh, and he, his understanding of the capital markets and ability to position structure and finance companies. I think this is a real strong point that is very often missing from junior exploration companies. Well, Ivan brings those skills to the table but more importantly and or, well, let's say of equal importance is Ivan's ability to know uh, where his skills uh, what his skills are and where they end and he has a very strong ability to attract uh, very strong talent. Uh, to build a mine requires a lot of diverse talents, and Ivan is able to attract uh, a lot of really top-notch people to his management team, which I think is always 
uh, a key to successful entrepreneurs, and uh, Ivan has had a very good track record in the past. He uh, was a co-founder of Keegan Resources, now a Sanko Gold. Uh, it's a company that was sold off and, uh, and made shareholders a lot of money. So Ivan is back to do it once again. And the way things are going, and I'm talking very enthusiastically because I do own shares of the stock myself. I am one of my larger holdings in my own portfolio. So I'm excited uh, to have Ivan back. Welcome, Ivan. It's good to have you with me again. Thanks, Jay. It's uh, definitely a very good pleasure to be back on your show. Always good to have you. Always good to have successful people on the show. Let's put it that way. And your flagship property now is the El Borquino property in Mexico. Now, it's my understanding that you really only sort of preliminarily looked at half of that property. But on that half, you've identified nine priority targets. And the thing that really uh, impresses me is the first three that you've put drill holes into, they've been a success. Talk to us a little bit about what you found so far and what the upside potential is here on just this first nine priority targets. Sure. Well, you've, you've done a great job introducing us, and, um, and it's an incredible team. And, and with an incredible project, you always attract the best people, and that's your job as a CEO to make sure that's happening. But here it's been quite easy because uh, when we got into Barcano, we saw the opportunity to find a major major big strong open pit gold district or a big gold system and um you know we started in a couple areas that were fairly explored or a little bit of work has been done on them in some past mining back in the 80s and we've expanded that into now three areas and and one thing you've got to take away from what I talk about today is these are three targets on only half the property and three of nine targets and everywhere we've drilled the geology's repeated itself and mm. actually had a, a meeting with an analyst earlier today and he was complimenting that and he's actually been to site and what he was saying was, you know, it's one thing when you find three or four deposits in, in a big land package and it's it's encouraging, but to see the same rocks, the same geology in each one, you know, to find three or four as we have you know, as far as five kilometers apart, it really is a excellent sign that we're in a really big system that's repeating. And, and if you're in a system that's repeating and you have a lot more targets to drill, which we do, that's what can lead to major world-class gold discoveries, something that's, you know, way in the, into the multi-million ounces. And I think that's our, our real potential here. Um, the three targets we've drilled uh, all together, we've drilled, I believe, about 100 holes. We've announced about 92 of those holes. And I believe Every hole is hit except for two holes that missed the target because we lost them in a, in a foot wall. We didn't quite get to the target zone, which is about a 98 or 97% success rate, which is outstanding. And most of those holes were, were step-out holes. So it really gives a testament of the consistency of the system. And the word that I like the most when I hear it from the field visits that I go and take with a geologist at site is predictability. And the one thing that, that really makes mines work and exploration exciting when you're finding all the really good gold grades from surface is to hear the word predictability and it increasing as, as we get further into the system. So, you know, it, it gives us the real, real good confidence that each of these targets that we're, we're drilling, you know, we think they have the merit of potentially being one to three million ounces. And that's a good range, but it's premature to really establish a full number high or low just on the basis that we have not had the luxury of having full access by our permits into these targets. And what I mean by that is we're drilling half or a third or 20% of the mineralized strike lengths on surface in each of these mm-hmm. areas, and we're not drilling very deep. We're drilling predominantly everything we've drilled and discovered is in the top 100 meters right from surface. So we drill down to as far as 200 meters. The mineralization is very strong and actually gets wider in some areas as you go deeper. But ultimately, 
we're basically scratching the surface on these targets. We're establishing, you know, what anyone technical who's following us can see is the start of, of ounces that will end up being, you know, well north of a million ounces combined and, and probably two or three million ounces with the first three targets and six more targets to go, which we'll be drilling in the next six to, to nine months. You know, uh, one thing I'd like to tell my listeners, Ivan, is and really suggest very strongly that they go to your website, and I don't have that in front of me. Can you tell us what that is, just to make sure I get it right? Yeah, website is www.cadenresources.com, and Caden is spelled C-A-Y-D-E-N, resources.com, so the word resources is spelled as it sounds. Yeah, and the reason I would suggest people go there, go there and look at the uh, corporate presentation, and you'll get pictures of what's going on, because the pictures are so important to me. If you look at the pictures of those nine targets, they're relatively close together. So conceivably, Ivan, I believe, it seems to me anyway, that you may be able to mine those from surface and have one central possibly a, a heap leach uh, operation going where you'd feed one major uh, heap leach from all these different deposits. Is that a concept that you guys are looking at now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they all lie within about a seven-kilometer radius, and that's an extremely short distance to have multiple large plus-million-ounce deposits. So you, you said it. You've hit a very good point there that we appreciate with this project, project and so does anyone who's seen it in, in person, is that you would build one mine, one plant, uh, likely heap leach as well as flotation because we do have copper, and the recoveries mm-hmm. are outstanding in our preliminary metallurgical numbers. But you know, when you can look at having three or four mines, hypothetically, in one scenario that operate out of one mine, you know, think of the cost you saved. You don't have to build three mines. You can build one mine to mine all three of those deposits that become mines, and that's what we're dealing with here. So, you know, not, not only does it have the, the attractive discovery potential of a huge amount of gold ounces, but the infrastructure and the accessibility and the opportunity to build one mine to mine all these deposits in one central area with very short distances to each target is what's going to really make this thing a, a very special deposit in terms of profitability down the road when it actually becomes a fully operating mine. Could you give our listeners a sense of what the uh, what your average grades are? I know you haven't yet calculated a resource, I believe, and uh, but but can you give a sense of what you might expect in the ways of north of a gram per, per ton, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. North of a gram, um, I, w- I wouldn't be at liberty right now to comment without a forty three one hundred one on the exact sure. grade. But I would say it's 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 quite a bit north of a gram. It'd be closer to the two gram, or possibly better than two. And the in the gram and a half to two and a half gram range is probably fair to give at this time. Um, so we don't know the end grade of what it's going to be. And if you add the copper to it, um, we think it'll definitely carry it over well over two grams. Um, and both of them will make sense from a metallurgical perspective. But, uh, you know, this, this is what you would call a higher grade open pit mine in Mexico from what we can see to some of the comparable mines out there. Um, you know, Gold Corp's mining at 0.69 grams per ton. And there's a few other mines that are sub a gram. This one's is, is itching on and getting close to two grams per ton or possibly better or easily better with the copper. And that's something that I think is, is a major factor in, in what we're discovering. You know, it's something that will end up paying our shareholders very well with, with every discovery hole that we add to the project. You mentioned metallurgy, which is always very, very important. Uh, can you give us some sense of what your early metallurgical, uh, what your early metallurgical studies are showing? Yeah, so we, we see the deposits in two ways. We see a significant amount of gold that's in the oxide, the top 70 or so meters from the surface, which we think uh, heat pleats would be absolutely the most common way that you'd want to mine that. And our early 
standard leech processing numbers, we're at about 97% recovery, which really doesn't get much better than that. And then as far as the, the copper that's found more, you know, at depth, once you go north, below 100 meters, you know, you look at the flotation and in a flotation circuit and a capex or something like this doesn't appear to be overwhelming. It would be in the $150 million range, which is quite low comparatively. Um, we look at recoveries through uh, over 90% of the copper, and then you would uh, leach the concentrate to get the gold portion out after that. But your value per ton, we think, would be comparable with being one of the most valuable ores per ton in Mexico for projects like this in terms of a flotation plant. So you have two extremely valuable ore types that you're encountering. And the big thing for us, and, and as far as we've gone with metallurgy so far, is we've really identified that there's no red flags, there's no metallurgical challenges that really concern us. Mm-hmm. If anything, there's they're pointing towards extremely po- profitable ways to extract the gold out of the rock. And that's something that you know we needed early on before we committed major expenditures to exploring, drilling, and, and taking the project through feasibility over the next 12 to 24 months to an actual mine. Uh, when do you expect to come out with a, 43, with a resource calculation? So that's a, that's a great question that I'm starting to get asked more often as of lately because uh, the amount of drilling we've done is exciting. And, you know, we feel internally it's, you don't want to sell your deposits short and come out uh-huh. too early and paint your company with a smaller deposit when you see much more ounces to be found in the project. And so the only thing holding us back there, uh, Jay, is the, the permitting, which is mm-hmm. now we expect that in the next two weeks we'll get some really, really big permits that will allow us to drill a lot more of these known targets that we see obvious strike length. Once we get this next round of permits in the next few weeks, that will give us a chance to really drill out the first three targets and start to test some of, some additional targets that we haven't got to yet. But on the back of that, I'd say Q1 of next year is a very reasonable time frame to see our first resource. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and internally we think it'll be comfortably over a million ounces of gold. Uh, that's, that's something we feel very strongly about. Um, but I could, I could expand on that, but I won't at this time. I'll just, you know, let the audience know that there's a lot of very obvious drilling that will add to that number between now and uh, when we get a chance to drill all of those meters. Yeah, indeed. And of course, uh, we want to let our listeners know, again, we mentioned uh, sort of a range, possible range of what the grades might be, but uh, the listeners should really keep their eyes focused on the 43101 when it comes out, because that will tell us more definitively what the grades are. But uh, certainly, as I look at some of these intersections that you guys have produced, they're very, very impressive and suggest to me the possibility, Ivan, I know you're not looking at that now, but the possibility that there could be some underground mining sometime in the future. But my goodness, you have so many targets now to look at, possibly, uh, probably, I think, in my view, a multi-million uh, ounce surface deposit. So clearly you're not thinking about underground workings or anything like that now. But as I, again, look at this map that you have on your website, I see these these target areas that you have that are closely linked together. And what I'm thinking to myself is, my gosh, this thing might, these things might be all linked in one giant uh, rich uh, feeder zone somewhere underneath. Uh, any thought along those lines? Yeah, you, you bring up a very good point. And for those of you who have been following our press releases, we've drilled um, at least one or two hundred gram per ton holes in three targets. And, and what that <laughs> means is when you take the grade of the gold that you've drilled and you multiply it by the width of the intercept that you find, you, you generally, by a rule of thumb, you get a number. And in our case, when you get over 100 grams per ton, it generally will in itself signify that this could be a major discovery. So we've done that three times or in three different deposits. We've done it multiple times in some of these targets. 
But when you look at some of the grades, uh, especially at Pena or Azteca or even at Angostura, the most recent discovery, you're getting ounce and a half type of material that's coming into these deposits that are on surface. And so what geologists on our team and, and independent geologists have seen this around the world, they've been uh, in some deposits, like, and I believe Newmont has one in New Zealand, where they found the golden cross vein into one surface deposit, and that ended up being a 3 million ounce feeder vein that came into that one deposit. So far, we believe we have three opportunities to find those because we have three deposits in different areas that we believe are all in one system. But you're right. You're right to assume that that's a major upside potential down the road. Um, Mm. It's something that we really want to test and drill early, but we have so much stuff to drill right by surface, disseminated, open pitable type of deposits, which is the low-hanging fruit, that our focus yep. will be there first. But once we get enough holes into some of these targets, that's when you get a real good idea of the shape of the mineralization and where the feeder structure could really be coming up from. And when you get into targeting those, that's where you take the multi-million ounce number and you're putting you know, a really good number in front of that is when you start to add these as a secondary major upside potential. So not only do we have a tremendous amount of strike lengths on surface or areas on surface to drill with very, very repeated, obvious geology, predictable geology, open pit targets. But now in three of the areas that we've drilled and found deposits so far, we've got feeder, potential feeder zones in each one of those deposits. So, you know, that's, that's extremely encouraging. It would be, you know, gravy on top of everything else, and it would really take us to the next level of having something that would be, you know, a world-class major gold gold system and we think so far from what we've seen that everything's pointing towards something much bigger here and we think there's going to be a lot of exciting drill drill results to come out of these targets the ones we've already been drilling and the new ones that we're going to drill and uh, you know I, I think the hard question the hard answer is how much do you think is there we don't know but we know there's enough there right now that will likely make a very very profitable mining scenario down the road. Yeah. Well, you know, it all sounds very good, Ivan, but I've been in this business 35 years. Probably you're not even that old, but I've been around this business. A l- you're, you're older than that, but not much. I, I've, been around, I've been around this business a long time, and I know there are always challenges. So what do you foresee as some of the challenges uh, that your company might be facing going forward? That's one question. Secondly, uh, what goals do you have for this company by the end of this year? Oh, those are two two great questions. Um, you know, every good story is too good to be true. If it, it's usually not true if it doesn't have challenges. And uh, the one that we all face is general market conditions, timing, and financing. And I think we're we're all in a, in a very forward pointed gold market that's getting better. It's you know we describe it as being in the turn of the market, not quite. The market hasn't quite turned yet, but it's turning to the right direction. So I think that's a low risk. The, the one thing that we've experienced so far is is permitting. And it's not a challenge that it's unattainable. It is just takes a bit more time than you'd expect. You know, mm-hmm. um, we're running about a month to a month and a half late on each permit we apply for, and that's simply a, uh, a more of an education process with this state in Mexico, which is very friendly towards mining. But there is a new government, and uh, we're finding ourselves just educating a bit more of what we're doing and, and convincing them that we're not actually mining the deposit yet. So to surmount this challenge, uh, we've integrated ourselves more with Semarnet, which is the Mexican permitting agency, and we've educated them a lot of, of what our plans are, and I think that we're going to see a lot better permitting timeline going forward with this project. But, you know, for the major things that you look at, you look at infrastructure, you would look at metallurgy, you would look at continuity of resource, and these are the three most important. And I'd say we have, we have 10 out of 10s in all three of those so far, um, and so I think that the only challenge that I could really attribute the project with at this stage, 
although there could be more down the road, would be uh, just a time of permit. So investors may wait an extra month, a month and a half on some of the permits that we expect. But um, as of this fall, we'll have enough permits to cover us for the next 12 to, to 18 months to drill readily until we get into feasibility. And that gives us time to be continually drilling and exploring in that, in that as we get more permits. Um, our objective this fall is, is fairly aggressive. We do own a second piece of land in the Guerrero Gold Belt that a lot of people have known us for. It's called Las Cayas. It sits in between uh, the two pits that make up the 16 million ounce Los Filos mine. Uh, that piece of land is called Las Cayas, and it's it's something we value, you know, to be in, in the multi-million dollar value range. And, and I'll quantify that by saying we sold land around Los Filos that the mine needed last year for 16 or 15.7 million dollars. And, you know, we think and believe this piece of land is worth a lot more because it actually has ounces. And if you look at the mine plan of this mine on the 43101 reports for it, and it's uh, from Goldcorp's website, you'll see their mine plan includes this piece of land. So we would like to be in a position with the sale of that land by the end of this year, um, plus our current cash position with at least 40 to $50 million cash in our treasury, which is you know, basically a dollar per share in cash, and we'd like to have two or three drills turning on Barquino as we carry on with the additional targets and we expand on the existing targets that we've discovered. So we plan to be exceptionally aggressive. We think the market is in it going in a direction that's going to reward us, as it has been doing so for us since the beginning of this year. And, um, you know, one point I'll make, and I made it in a recent presentation I did in Vancouver, was our project success is, or our stock price success is very indicative of, of our project success, meaning that, you know, if, if we were good at telling our story, we could never achieve the kind of performance we've had. It's really the project that's, that's driving everything, and, uh, and the project's asking for more drills. It's asking for money and for more money, and we're going to give it that to, uh, to expose as much value as we possibly can for our shareholders. Well, very good. And one of the outstanding points about uh, about what you've been able to do there, Ivan, is raise money and do it efficiently. So congratulations on that. Very Thank few you. juniors have been able to do that, and that is very, very important. And, and clearly this other property, this second property you have, should help you continue that success uh, in funding. So very, very important, a very exciting story. Uh, we want to get you back because there's a few more questions I want to ask, and by the time we have you back another time, there will be more th- ground to cover. So, uh, But we are out of time for now. I want to thank you very much, Ivan, for being with us. It's a pleasure talking with you. I really love the story, and uh, so I want to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Jay. It's a real pleasure being on your show, and uh, any time that works with you, uh, look forward to it. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because coming up next, we've got Chris Rossini. Uh, He's going to talk about his book that Ron Paul loves. It's called Set Money Free, What Every American Needs to Know About the Federal Reserve. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Rossini. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Caden Resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in Mexico. The company's flagship El Barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have, which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in Mexico. 
the company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Chris Rossini. Uh, he has written a book called Set Money Free, What Every American Needs to Know About, how the, about the Federal Reserve. And as I noted in the monologue to start today's show, uh, Ron Paul has given a, a really glowing uh, forward to this book. Uh, Ron is very much in favor of it and suggests that each of you go out and buy not one copy but several copies and give it to your friends. And the reason I think that's good advice in part is because the book is really written. It's not written for pretentious Ph.D. economists from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. It's written for average Americans. Everybody, you can understand this book, but it is really it really lays out the fundamentals of why we've gotten ourselves into the horrible mess economically and in other ways. I'd say uh, you know, spiritually and morally in many ways, why we've gotten ourselves in such a pickle. So uh, welcome, Chris. It's really good to have you with me today. Jay, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really, it. good. it's really good to have you. And, and uh, before we go any further, uh, you're, I guess a, a good place to go for your, to follow your work is, is where? Uh, economicpolicyjournal.com or where can people go? And also uh, let us know right away where people can buy your book. Okay, well, the book is available on Amazon.com. It's available in paperback and Kindle, and it's also available on BarnesandNoble.com. Good. I write, regular, uh, excuse me, I write regularly for, yes, EconomicPolicyJournal.com, and my articles are often picked up on LewRockwell.com. There's a nice archive there. And I also contribute and help out as much as I can to one of your regular guests, uh, Daniel McAdams from the Ron Paul Institute, uh, I help him in various ways and even write columns once in a while for Ron Paul Institute as well. Yeah, I've noticed a couple of your columns there. Thank you for that. Uh, I, we do have Daniel on on a regular basis, uh, really because I think he, like yourself and Ron Paul, are really uh, trying to get to the heart of what's, of, of what's uh, causing our difficulties. So uh, I'd like to delve right into your book. We only have about 10 minutes, and it's just a shame. So I'm sure I'm going to want to have you come back. But, um, you know... Uh, Let's uh, the first section of your first section of your book. Uh, first, I guess, first chapter. Money is created in the marketplace. Uh, can you just give a simple definition of money, perhaps, as as a starter here? Yes, I start off uh, in the beginning talking about money, since it's a book about the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve has a government granted monopoly on money. I, it's only it was only logical to me to define what money was. And uh, prior to government takeover. And money was uh, a commodity 
any type of commodity that was primarily used in exchange, in trade. Its primary purpose was not uh, for consumption or for industrial uses, but uh, to exchange, uh, to be used as a medium of exchange mm-hmm. with other people. Sure. And uh, this was a blessing to mankind because it freed man from uh, the horrors of self-sufficiency and barter. Sure. Now, there was now a, uh, a medium of exchange that could be used throughout society, and, um, and gold and silver were primarily chosen through tons of trial and error over the years, and they were used all over the world as money. It was only later that the government came and monopolized money for itself. If you look today at any currency in the world, you'll see governments, they have presidents of, uh, pictures of presidents and pyramids and, and, and um, um, signatures of bureaucrats. You would think that government owns the monetary domain, but money was created in the marketplace originally. Yeah, and so uh, by trial and error, you say the market chose gold and silver. I'm, I'm just thinking if I want to uh, you know, provide some service or sell some commodity to somebody and I don't have any need to buy anything else at that moment, I want to be able to store value so that when I do have a need, I can use that uh, and go out and buy what I need or whatever good and service I need. And so people chose gold and silver. Why do you think that might have been the case? Well, there were several reasons, uh, and I list them in my book. Um, first, the first reason is they're both durable, meaning unlike, let's say, if apples were used as currency, apples would spoil quickly, so it would spoil on you and it would lose its exchange value. Uh, they're also very portable, meaning you could transfer them from place to place uh, as opposed to, let's say, land. If land was used as money, you can't really move land, and probably... One of the uh, finest reasons that it uh, was used as money was its rarity. It's mm-hmm. very hard to dig up and uh, mine gold. Very mm-hmm. expensive and very costly process. And you, could, you were insured that uh, your gold and silver coins would not uh, lose purchasing power overnight because, as opposed to today where governments can print as much money as they want. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I used to hear Doug Casey talk about it. He, he attributed it to Aristotle, actually. Uh, I think you said diver, uh, durability is one. Uh, consistency. Uh, he says that's why we don't use real estate. Uh, gold is convenient. That's why we don't use lead. In other words, you had to lug lead around. Uh, it's divisible. That's why we don't use diamonds. So you can, you know, it's, it, you can easily divide it. So, yeah, those are the uh, intrinsic value. As Doug says that's why we don't use paper or shouldn't. But, of course, we use paper and digital money now. It's even further removed from anything tangible. Yes. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how, uh, those, how gold and silver was an element, both of them were elements that, that work so well naturally without government doing anything. And now we have government stepping in and, um, uh, and making a mess of things clearly. But the second segment or chapter of your book, you talk about banks make a, a wrong turn. What do you mean by that? Well, banking was a legitimate business at one point. It was a mm-hmm. non-fraudulent business. They were, at one point, it was. At one point, yeah. They, <laughs> they were used as, uh, as places for safekeeping of your money. If I have gold coins that I don't want laying around my house, but I trust the bank down the street that he will protect it, 
mm-hmm. I would take it to the bank and uh, he would charge me a fee for his uh, safekeeping services. Um, he, if he wanted to loan that money out for business expansion, I would have to um, agree that I do not have access to my money since it's loaned out to someone else. And the banker would pay me an interest rate for my sacrifice. Since I can't consume, I, get, uh, I would be paid an interest rate uh, for my sacrifice. He would then loan out the money to a business that was looking to expand and charge a higher interest rate than what the banker pays me. So the banker would make the spread. Mm-hmm. And no inflation occurred. Uh, totally legitimate. He, he would also be profitable in uh, charging me a fee for the storage uh, services, but bankers uh, found a way to be uh, found a way to be greedy and um, took a wrong turn. Would uh, you say dishonest? Because I think I know what you're leading up to, but I'll let you continue on. Uh, fractional reserve banking, probably. Uh, yes. What What happened was it became even more convenient to use receipts for the gold that was stored in the bank. So the the banker would give me, let's say, a receipt. Let's say I'm storing 10 ounces of gold with him. He he gives me a receipt for that 10 ounces of gold. Now, that receipt is not money. It's just a receipt. It's a claim for the gold that's sitting there. Mm-hmm. But people would exchange receipts. And, and obviously, the bankers would have to have a great reputation. They would have to know before you exchange a receipt that you could actually go to this bank and the gold will be there. But the bankers uh, saw a situation that they could take advantage of. What happened was more uh, the receipts were being exchanged and less and less people were coming to actually physically take the gold out of the bank. Mm-hmm. The receipts were being exchanged and a lot, it was based on trust. So the bankers thought of a scheme that, hey, what if I create fake receipts? and make them look just like the regular receipts. Uh-huh. I could loan them out, earn interest on them, and all would be all would be great for me. So that's what they did and that that's how they inflated the receipts basically. And we we've all seen the movie um, the movies with, with the old movies with the bank runs, it's a wonderful life. That's that's when the people realize that uh, chicanery has been going on. That mm-hmm. more receipts exist for the gold that's in the vaults, and they all rush to the bank, and the first people to the bank get the gold out, and the people that don't get the gold because it's gone, they're the ones that are stuck with the fake receipts. Well, so it seems to me that at least up until Roosevelt and then uh, completely when Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971, there was some gold backing the U.S. dollar. But once Nixon took us off the gold standard, you can see that this sort of practice of uh, multiple or creation of money out of nothing, which is what the gold, the gold bankers did back then, started to really gain a head of steam uh, almost with exponential growth of money that occurred post-Nixon, 1971. I can just really look at that's when our inflation problems started taking place. Uh, I don't understand if you could maybe explain to me, you know, Milton Friedman was a great advocate of free markets except when it come to money. He believed that the government, the Federal Reserve, should have control of the money. Uh, you know, he, wh- why do you think, can you explain, maybe you can, can't explain Milton Friedman, I guess maybe that's asking too much, but 
I, you know, where where did Milton Friedman go wrong, and what has what has happened? What's resulted? We've only got a couple of minutes left. I'm, my engineer is telling me, what where has this taken us now that we have endless amounts of money creation? Now that there's not even any gold constraint on the amount of money that's printed. Uh, I add Milton Friedman to the long list of characters that try to make a dishonest system work. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fed is a culmination of a dishonest system that is imposed on us by law, and we don't have a choice against it, at least until enough people understand. So he, he uh, came up with a scheme of the, you can inflate this much and it'll be okay, and it, and it turns out he was wrong, obviously. And I think, I believe in his later years, he took back, he said he was wrong. But um, what we have today is now a system where government can create as much as it wants, and this is the wrong institution to have that kind of power. This is an institution that has the ability to use aggressive force by law against people, Mm -hmm. and they can finance it on their own without asking us. They do it with wars. They do it with welfare. They've built the biggest welfare, warfare state in the history of mankind. It's, It's what you would expect from government having a monopoly over money. Mm-hmm. And at some point, that has to end by, uh, uh, by letting the marketplace take over once again. Well, it seems to me, Chris, that the, uh, the market will take over whether the government lets it take over or not. The markets ultimately will overpower government. I think we almost saw that take place in 2008, 2009. And as David Stockman has pointed out on this show and in his many writings, nothing has gotten better. If anything, we've dug ourselves into a deeper hole. My engineer is telling me we've only, we're basically, we're out of time. It's just incredible. I didn't allow enough for you today, Chris. So I'm hoping that you can come back next week and we can pick up on this conversation because I've just barely gotten started with you but in the meantime I'd like to tell people that this is the book is set money free what every American needs to know about the Federal Reserve and again Ron Paul gave it a, a really a glowing endorsement uh, Ron is saying don't buy one book don't buy one copy of this book buy several and hand them out to your friends because this will help the common folks throughout the country understand why we're in such a mess as we are it's a monetary problem and I would argue that it also then ex, uh, expands over into a moral uh, problem as well but uh, Chris we're out of time and uh, I'll look forward to talking to you uh, next week hopefully I'll be here thanks Jack Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because we do have Gene Epstein coming up. He, uh, of course, writes for Barron's every week, and he has some very interesting things to say about uh, people like Paul Krugman and other socialists who really don't understand anything that Chris Rossini just told us or anything about free markets. Uh, They think that we should be on the Ph.D. standard and not on the gold standard and not on the free market standard. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network caden resources is an advanced gold mining exploration company with two exceptional gold projects in mexico the company's flagship el barqueño project represents the most valuable opportunity that an exploration company can have which is the continuous discovery of high-grade gold from surface in arguably the best mining jurisdiction in mexico The company's second project, Morelos Sur, has one of the most talked-about land positions in the heart of Mexico's largest producing gold belt. The 
business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, I'm really happy to have Gene Epstein with me again, who uh, really needs no introduction because Gene is with us uh, frequently, uh, at least uh, once a month. Uh, he is the moderator of a wonderful event that takes place the first Thursday of every month at the General Society uh, Library at 20 West 44th Street, and that's the New York City Junto Meetings. Uh, that is, uh, that, that's located between 5th and 6th Avenues, and uh, I would uh, really urge any and all of you who are within uh, driving distance of New York City, a subway distance, come on down and, and see and listen uh, and take advantage of this free show. It doesn't cost a penny to get in, and you are free to ask questions of the of the guest speaker. And uh, our, our guest speaker this coming Thursday is none other than Gene Epstein himself. So really pleased to, to have you, Gene. Thanks for joining me again. And, and what are you going to talk about this Thursday? Well, uh, you might think that uh, there's nothing further to say about Thomas Piketty's uh, book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century, uh, the book about inequality, uh, the book that uh, basically nobody has read uh, based on uh, research that was cited from <laughs> Amazon's Kindle that nobody got past to page 26. Uh, my point is going to be, in part, that uh, that, uh, that book has a lot in common in that regard, um, uh, um, uh, among other most unread books, like uh, John Maynard Keynes' General Theory and like uh, Karl Marx's uh, book uh, Capital, and uh, that when such books go almost completely unread, they become all the more dangerous. Because uh, nobody opens them and finds out, oh my God, what what kind of mess is this? Uh, they just uh, read the commentary, and the commentary has, of course, been forthcoming from uh, three Nobel Prize winners. I'm, I'm going to point out Robert Solow, uh, Paul Krugman, and Joseph Stiglitz, who actually, in, in each case, have a very different version of what the book says. Uh, <laughs> but people listening to them and uh, not reading the book. So I'm going to talk about the phenomenon of the Piketty book. I'm, I'm also going to work from uh, these, uh, a very good work by another Nobel Prize winner whom I have more respect for, that's Friedrich Hayek. Uh, I think one of his best books is a short one called The Mirage of Social Justice, in which I think he really has written the definitive discussion of the mirage of equality in a market system. Um, but uh, again, uh, the mirage of equality is indeed uh, something that all people seem to have some craving for. It goes back to one of the seven deadly sins, that is the sin of envy. It goes mm-hmm. back to the 10th commandment, the one that would have us not covet our neighbor's house. Right, right. So those things run deep in humanity, and I think that's the reason why this rather, this totally messy book resonates. 
I'm also going to point out something that is little understood, uh, that uh, to my amazement, in his longest review of uh, the Piketty books, it was, it was Paul Krugman who got it right, who admits that Piketty commits a sleight of hand. Um, I'm not going to go into it. The sleight of hand is actually that Piketty himself realizes that his capital versus growth model, which has been so touted about as his key insight into capitalism, actually doesn't apply to his main bet noir, the U.S. economy. Uh, he completely does a sleight of hand in that he actually repudiates his own model when it comes to the U.S. economy, and he goes after uh, the uh, usual, which is CEO salaries. Uh, it's really just old wine and new bottles about how those CEO salaries are, uh, and that while it's been argued that Piketty has this key insight into capital uh, growth versus wage growth, um, that really he himself realizes how ludicrous that is to apply to the U.S. economy or indeed to any economy, and uh, for that reason he does a bait and switch. I'm going to point that out and then point out that, to my amazement, Krugman realized that and does accuse Piketty of a kind of sleight of hand. But being a fundamentally dishonest writer, Krugman has actually contradicted himself in so much else that he's written about the Piketty book. So it's a fascinating phenomenon, but I'm, I'm trying to argue uh, that, that free market people have got to understand that the, uh, the sin of envy, the deadly sin of envy, and the Tenth Commandment um, are around for a reason, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, they're there to correct a certain tendency in human nature to be envious and to covet uh, our neighbors' houses. Yeah, and to covet and then steal, which is really what we get the government to help us do in a socialist society, right? right. Actually, and help us rob. A, that was a, a Nobel lecture. I'm, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he, he said really the two Ten Commandments about economics are uh, thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal. You know? Right, and but that's so, what governments do. Governments, governments covet. Do. They, they, they get votes uh, from those yeah. of us who covet, and then they, yeah. through the barrel of a gun, take from those that have. It's, it's just a, the lack of respect for private property. Gene, you know you yeah. said uh, – this guy Krugman, uh, I was I was just thinking as you said the sleight of hand. It takes one yeah. to know one, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. No. It, it takes one con artist to really identify another one, perhaps. Well, no, no, no that's a, that's an excellent point, and it, it's amazing that even in this particular case, Krugman uh, wrote a, a piece called "The Piketty Panic," in which he attributes to Piketty totally different ideas. Really, it's that when you give these guys the gun of envy and uh, and the mantra of inequality, uh, they'll uh, just say anything. So indeed, he's. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I I reflect that if. I actually were a uh, sort of social democrat like Krugman, I'd be embarrassed to be his intellectual ally uh, because he, he is so fundamentally dishonest in, in what he writes. I've encountered a few people who, lean, who certainly agree with him more than I do, economists who agree with him more than I do, who are indeed embarrassed about him. You know, we've got, uh, my engineer says, two minutes. I wanted oh, you to okay. comment real quickly uh, yeah. while, we have, while we're talking about Krugman. Yeah. You wrote an article on the 28th of July for Barron's called How Krugman Fudged the Truth on the Debt, on the U.S. Debt. Yeah. Can you talk? Give us, you have a, yeah, 30, you have a minute. Quickly, uh, well, quickly, readers asked me about that. You know, I, I, uh, I, I, I reluctantly had to write about it. They, they were incredulous that I could write an earlier column the week before that the debt is a big problem according to the Congressional Budget Office. Krugman, almost the same 
same day wrote a column. I I'd, I'd unbeknownst to me that uh, came out that uh, according to the budget congressional budget office, the debt is not a problem at all. And so readers said, "How can you and Krugman completely uh, read the same study and come to totally different conclusions?" And I said, "It was simply because Krugman didn't read the study. You know, yes. all he did was take one set of numbers and and completely uh, suppress uh, the other set of numbers." I actually think in that case it was just sheer laziness on his part that he didn't read past the first couple of pages. Of course, that's thoroughly irresponsible if you're going to be a, a columnist uh, uh, and to quote the CBO. But well, uh, that's really all it amounted to. He, and uh, he a big time, a big time columnist, one that's revered for whatever reasons. Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's incredible. But we are yeah. we are basically out of time. I, I think okay. it would suggest to people uh, if you pick up a copy of the of Barron's, read Gene's articles every almost every week. He writes mm-hmm. uh, the economic beat. He also is involved with the review of a lot of really great books and not such great books, and he mm-hmm. provides a, a critique of those, or he has other people that does. So Gene does an excellent job of Barron's. Pick up your copy of Barron's and read uh, Gene Epstein's insights every week. So I want to thank you very much, and I Gene. And I people at 20 West 44th Street, that's in Midtown Manhattan. And that's that's right. Avenue, of course, that's know. right. And 7 o'clock, uh, 7.30 to 8 o'clock yeah. is when the yeah. show really yeah. begins. Mm-hmm. And Gene Epstein uh, himself is the, key, uh, the keynote speaker this week, uh, this month. Uh, that's this coming Thursday uh, at, the, uh, at the library. Thank you very much, Gene, sure. for, for being with us uh, once again. Look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Great. My pleasure. So, folks, that's all the time we have for the first hour of today's show, but there is more at jtaylormedia.com. Uh, Daniel McAdams, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, will be with me. Quinton Henning, uh, the CEO of one of the most exciting junior gold mining stories I have heard in 35 years. He's going to be joining me as well in the second hour. So, jtaylormedia.com. See you there. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.